Hi everyone, welcome back to the Outliers podcast. I'm your host Pankaj Mishra and we are back with a new season of Outliers called the season of resilience. These are uncertain times and everyone is trying to cope with uncertainties, anxiety and so many unanswered questions. We thought we could be useful to all of you by doing a fresh series of conversations with outliers and some new guests. Please stay safe and I really hope all of us get out of this stronger and more resilient. Today I'm really, what can I say, really, I can't say really thrilled given the times we are in, but uh, I'm really privileged to have uh, Ravi Venkateshan, who has worked across different sectors, is the voice of wisdom for many of us. And we are going to be discussing some of his lessons in navigating crisis, unforeseen situations, and hopefully pick some uh, actionable insights. Welcome to the podcast, Ravi. Hey, Pankaj. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. It's obviously an extraordinary moment, and, and I'm glad that you're getting many voices together. So, Ravi, just to kickstart this conversation, there is a lot of anxiety around all of us, and it's only getting worse. What do you make of what's going on? Well, I don't claim to have any particular insight. Uh, we're all trying to uh, figure out what's really going on. But clearly, we're dealing with um, a situation that happens, you know, once in a century, a situation of uh, that's extreme with extreme consequences and also extreme uncertainty. So we can right now only extrapolate from what is happening in other countries, um, particularly what's happening in the U.S., in Italy, um, in the U.K., and uh, try and understand how it might play out in India. But, um, you know, there are two extreme scenarios. Um, the most uh, uh, probable scenario is, is in the next few days, if we are not able to contain the virus through draconian measures, um, lo lockdowns and so forth, um, the, and if the virus actually breaks out, then we are looking at a scenario where conservatively 300 million uh, of us will fall sick and perhaps even more. And this virus appears to have a mortality rate of somewhere around 1% for the average population. It's much higher for older or, or uh, at-risk groups. And so you're talking about potentially a catastrophe. Now, um, you, you know, our government, uh, both center as well as in the states, is conflicted like every other government. It's torn between locking down and saving lives versus balancing the impact on um, you know the economy and livelihoods so the hobson's choice here is lives versus livelihoods and so you know of course they could clamp down much in much tougher ways we can have a total lockdown but as people uh, are beginning to recognize one person's spending is another person's income and so uh, if you begin to do this uh, very aggressively and it lasts a long time and the chances are and it looks fairly likely that this will last until who knows July, August, September at the very least before wave one subsides, um, you've got uh, hundreds of millions of people with no income 
And in our country, uh, 85% of the uh, uh, people work in the informal sector. So, and they are doing, you know, various types of services and small t- production, etc. So, I, things like work from home are simply not a possibility. So, what are they supposed to do? So, this is the, you know, enormous, enormous challenge that uh, poorer countries, including India, face. And, you know, my own sense is if this plays out in the way I describe, we're looking at what is potentially a mass extinction, a mass extinction not of people and humanity, but of businesses, a mass extinction of livelihoods. And the only sort of uh, way of, uh, you know, dealing with this is what is called helicopter money, huge amounts of direct cash transfers to the neediest and uh, a massive, massive stimulus, uh, not some timid uh, half measures, but a bold uh, stimulus package that is aimed particularly at keeping alive, uh, you know, small small entrepreneurs, small businesses, etc. And this is why, you know, if you look at the U.S. today, they are talking about one trillion is not going to be enough, and they're the Republicans are trying to negotiate a bailout package of two trillion. And if you say that, uh, you know, that's about five percent of their economy. We need to be talking about extremely large numbers for India. And without this, uh, such a stimulus, I think things are looking extremely difficult for most startups, for most small and medium businesses and large businesses. The point that's really terrifying out here is you could potentially see companies like Boeing and McDonald's go down, you know, not to talk of <laughs> you know, the the small uh, shop next to you and so uh, the small manufacturing company, the parts supplier, etc. So this is, I think, a very realistic scenario and we shouldn't underestimate it. There are those who would like to also believe an alternative scenario. There are some astrologers who are say, predicting that today their planets are going to move and the new alignment will result in much improvement by the 30th of March, and the, the virus will simply peter out uh, in, in April, and a cure will be found. You know, look, I'm not trying to be funny here. I think it shows the range of assumptions out there. I certainly hope the astrologers are right, uh, but we need to plan and prepare for the worst, even as we hope for the best. This uh, sets the context uh, very uh, realistically, Ravi. Now let's uh, look at uh, your own career uh, and life. And if you could handpick, uh, you know, a situation or two uh, where you faced an unforeseen crisis uh, and uh, share some of the lessons uh, with us. Yeah, I I can and I probably will, but I'm feeling uh, that my, the crises that I dealt with are so small compared to the magnitude of the tsunami we are facing. Look, like anybody who's, you know, lived a reasonable number of years and handled a lot of responsibility, we've had to deal with lots of crises, personal and and uh, professional. But, I mean, this is a once-in-a-century phenomenon. But I think it may be still worth discussing uh, crises because maybe the principles uh, still apply. So, I was thinking maybe what should I talk about? Well, I'll talk about, you know, I spent many years in the manufacturing industry. I spent 
years and years with uh, Cummins Engine Company making diesel engines. And in fact, I came back to India in 1996 from the U.S. to a very, very troubled joint venture between Cummins and Tata Motors called Tata Cummins in Jamshedpur. This is 1996. And um, uh, the... The situation I found was the joint venture was in shambles. The two partners didn't trust each other because the JV agreement was unfair. Uh, a plant that was designed to produce and sell 250, uh, 250 engines a day was making one or two engines a day. We were out of cash on day one, which was October 1st. Uh, when I landed, there was no money for payroll or for pay paying the electricity bills. Um, the product was a complete failure. Uh, it was actually launched as something that was going to be a huge improvement over the old trucks and buses that were plying the roads at that time. But um, just to give you the magnitude of the issues, typically in the automotive industry, you measure defects per 100 vehicles, 100 cars or 100 trucks or whatever. Here we were measuring hundreds of defects per truck. And the customers were really pissed off because they had uh, pawned their wife's jewels to buy a new bus or a truck, and now they had lost all their money. I mean, it was hard. It's hard to visualize a bigger mess. And my job as a 32-year-old uh, CEO of that thing was actually quite simple, not to fix it. My mandate was, how do you close this uh, failing venture with the minimum losses to Cummins? So, mm. so uh, we began in, a, in October, and the first thing you do is realistically size up um, the gravity of the situation. And usually for a business, cash turns out to be number one. And so we, we were out of it. And so job number one was to go with a begging bowl to our joint venture partner, Tata Motors. At that time, the CFO was a fantastic guy called Praveen Kadle. And, you know, if he hadn't um, lent a hand, we would have gone under on day two of my uh, uh, of my tenure. So we managed to, uh, you know, get a little bit of money and uh, uh, make partial payroll. And my I spent a tremendous amount of time first earning the trust of the joint venture partner, because that was what was the core to succeeding. After that, we got, you know, got on a really aggressive force march. For instance, we had to figure out how to reduce the cost of the engine by 80%. 80% was just a stunning uh, goal. But we actually overshot that. In 18 months, we managed to reduce the cost by 85%. Uh, another huge uh, um, effort with many, many, many task forces was aimed at addressing each of the quality issues that were out there. Um, and and so on and so forth. So I can drill further, but the, at the end of about 24 months, instead of having to close the venture, we began to uh, see light at the end of the tunnel. By summer of 99, the plant was full, making 200 engines a day, then 220. And uh, today it's a company that earns about a 40% return on capital. But just, it was one of my first experiences as a young leader uh, learning to manage a giant crisis that was, you know, well above beyond anything I had experienced. Um, so that was one. In 2001, I was uh, chairman of Cummins India, and we ran into a really bad economic situation again. 
where there was a zero demand for the large uh, high horsepower engines that Cummins India produced uh, or produces. Most of these went to big generators. The country was in an economic doldrums then like now. And again, we were confronted with an existential issue. You know, one of the advantages, and I'll come back to this, is both uh, Tata Cummins and Cummins India were unionized. And in a unionized environment, you can't just send workers home like you can in many other industries, okay? So you actually have to work with the union and the employees and find solutions and make decisions or else they react badly. And rather than being a hindrance, it was the source, the dialogue was the source of so many, many, many productive ideas. So the employees volunteered to take pay cuts. They volunteered to take their vacation time. More importantly, one of the more interesting experiments we tried, uh, Pankaj, was we sent everybody home. So just go back to your villages and towns that you come from, but go out and meet customers, okay? Don't just sit at home there. Mm -hmm. Go out and meet as many bus fleets, truck fleets, or people, companies which are operating these Cummins gensets and learn from it and send reports back. It changed the culture. It come, you know, when the good times came back, it completely changed the culture because everybody, whether it was somebody in accounting or somebody who was, you know, a janitor or somebody who was assembling something for the first time in their lives came in contact with customers and understood they could connect their work with the business with the business of their customer. So that mm-hmm. so we did that. One of the things we learned in both these situations is crisis and opportunity, as they say, are two sides of the same coin. So in Cummins, we said, look, okay, nobody's buying this, um, buying our big engines. What do we do now? And we started looking at export markets. And from a very, very slow start in 2001, uh, we began to see success exporting engines to uh, the UK, to the US, to the Middle East. And of course, tr- that required a tremendous amount of work to improve quality, improve simple things like paint and finishes, and uh, this, you know, what what our castings look like, so that it doesn't look like something shabby made in India, jugad, but actually indistinguishable from a global product. By 2004, when I left, 50% of the revenues were coming from exports, and that's been the mainstay of Cummins since uh, India since then. Uh, we also ex- mm-hmm. got into new markets. We said, okay, nobody's buying big generators. But at that time, the self, uh, cell phone companies were rolling out towers. And each tower had a small genset, except we didn't make those small things. But we said, all right, let's go on and, and you know buy engines from tractor manufacturers like Taffy and package it into gensets and sell it. And that grew into a fantastic, successful business. So Cummins now is a global leader in small gensets, which I exported, uh, not just used domestically. We got into IT. Uh, We, you know, I said, look, there's an IT boom. We're not participating in it. So we started KPIT Cummins Infotech, which went on to be a huge success. We said, what else can we sell? We got into lubricants. And so we started a joint venture with Valvoline called Valvoline Cummins to sell uh, lubricants to our customers. So we we tried many new businesses. So what if somebody is not buying X? Can we sell you know A, B, C, D products instead? And some of those really took off. And 
by the time I left the company to join Microsoft, um, you know, 20% of our uh, global revenues were coming from India, which is just a fantastic achievement. And I look back and I thank the crisis for being the stimulus for all this creativity, this innovation, this improvement, and so forth. And then the last thing I'll talk about is uh, my Microsoft in 2008 during the fiscal crisis. Um, it was a very sudden deflation, as you remember, in October of 2008. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. And uh, Rajan was the head of uh, sales and marketing. I was the chairman. And we were dealing with a very tough situation because in a financial crisis, one of the most deferrable expenses is you know, upgrading your IT system or buying new software. It's something that can definitely be postponed. So we saw essentially our uh, new revenues being uh, going to zero in a quick period of time. So again, um, there was uh, a lot of internal brainstorming and we said, look, what is it we can do here? Um, and of course, you took the usual cost-cutting measures and so forth, but those are not going to save the day. We needed to find new sources of revenue, new business. And so Rajan and I came up with this idea of a, a marketing campaign, which went out to every single customer saying, here are 10 ways in which we can help save you money. Because the thing that customers are very receptive to in a downturn is anything that helps them save money or find new business. So, for instance, we said, mm -hmm. look, why don't you stop all travel? and use Microsoft video conferencing uh, to conduct uh, all these meetings. Now today, Zoom is red hot, but this is now 12 years ago that we were pushing the same idea with fantastic <laughs> success. Another idea is, hey, you guys are you know, spending a lot of money on IT with different vendors, with Oracle, with Symantec for security products, et cetera. So why don't you consolidate your spend with Microsoft and uh, will help you save a lot of money by cutting out other vendors. Obviously not a popular idea with the industry, but it was hugely customer-friendly. So net, 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 we ended that year with 17% growth and got the uh, uh, award from Bill Gates for the best-performing geography in the world that year. So it's again, this is not a time to brag or anything. The point is, if you really apply your minds to it, get everybody thinking about ideas, um, I think that you can actually end up uh, finding many, many opportunities in the midst of an otherwise super dark period. However, I want to come back to what I said, Pankaj, which is these were tiny crises in comparison to what it is we are facing today. What we are facing today is absolutely unprecedented uh, yeah, in human history. So I don't want to say that, uh, you know, we, there is much that is generalizable, but I think there are four or five principles. And if you allow me to rattle on, I think there are some principles which are uh, useful. I think the first thing I would tell founders, leaders, CEOs of these businesses is, Stay calm, okay? It's a very tough situation. I myself have going, you know, going around with my stomach sometimes in knots, thinking about what, what is, how this is going to play out, both in terms of, uh, you know, the impact on us as human beings, and but also as uh, the business impact. But 
as a leader, we ha- we ca- cannot afford to panic, show anxiety, make knee-jerk decisions. We have to have to find every way to stay calm, stay centered, and make thoughtful decisions and calm down others around us who may be agitated. So that's kind of uh, the first thing. And it's no easy thing, but it's really crucial. The second idea is uh, uh, this thing called the Stockdale Paradox. And I really love it. It comes from good to great. And it's about Admiral Stockdale, who was uh, shot down in the Vietnam War. And he was imprisoned by the North Vietnamese. And in very, very, very difficult conditions where most people, no, most prisoners actually died. And he was one of the very few senior commanders who survived and um, lived to tell the story. And he says, look, if you go, the ones who survived, and this is the same of the survivors, Jewish survivors of the concentration camps and so forth, extreme situations. You have to, on one hand, em- embrace reality that you're in and plan for the worst but at the same time, still hoping for the best and staying optimistic. So this is the paradox that we have to be able to hold, which is plan for the worst, but continue to remain hopeful and optimistic. And this psychological makeup is very, very, very central to those who end up actually coming out of this um, you know, in reasonable shape. So, so both of these are just mindset issues. Then it comes to developing a practical set of short-term plans, right? So if you think about companies today, they're facing so many challenges at the same time. It's like the perfect storm. So on one hand, demand is collapsing. It's going to zero. It doesn't matter what business you're in, revenue, uh, unless you're FMCG right now or selling medicines, then it's probably still okay. But most businesses are finding that they're uh, their customers are melting away, the revenues are going to zero, and cash is becoming you know, really, really uh, very, very scarce. And we're going to see a liquidity crisis like we've never seen um, pretty soon. So cash is the second issue. The third is you're seeing supply chains breaking down, we're seeing logistic chains breaking down, you're seeing many people choosing to stay at home, migrant workers who are out here uh, are going back home, um, to, you know, and you can see this, the videos yesterday that went viral from Pune Station, uh, you know, for the Pune Patna Express. So li- just finding enough, uh, you know, workers and employees is a challenge. So all this is happening at the same time. So what you need to do is make some pretty good short-term plans. And the single most important thing that I think uh, is important to do is develop two scenarios. One is a realistic scenario and one is a worst case scenario and do some projections of your financials and cash flow and say, how bad could it get? And then therefore, what decisions do we need to make today to start conserving uh, cash? Because if you're out of cash, you're out of oxygen, you're dead. So what do we need to do today to, you know, get through the what what is likely to be uh, the, the the situation that we are we're all going to experience? So that's kind of really important. So um, mm. th- I I don't know how many of the uh, startups and young companies today are making, you know, really robust scenario based uh, short term plans. 
in addition to, find, to trying to figure out all the band-aids to the other crises, the logistics crises, the, and so on and so forth. See, you can get very quickly into firefighting, but you also need a bit of a plan for the next 30, 60, 90 days. So uh, that's important. And then beyond that, we need to start thinking about where are the opportunities Okay, because as I said, from my own experience, there are opportunities in crisis. Yesterday, I was talking to Rima Nanavati. Uh, Rima is the Rima Ben is the uh, CEO of uh, uh, Seva, the Self-Employment um, Employed Women's Association. They have nearly two million self-employed women across the country, and they're facing an absolute catastrophe because, again, the demand is zero, and this these women depend on what they make and sell for their livelihood. So she said, "What shall we do?" And we brainstorm, what else can they make? Can they make masks? Can they make gloves? Can they make hand sanitizers? Can they make hospital gowns? Okay. And, uh, and if they can make these things quickly, how can we, you know, figure out how to distribute them? So the point is, every business could be making something that is urgently, desperately needed in this crisis. In, in the U.S. today, companies like Ford and uh, GM are trying to make ventilators. Anand Mahindra announced the same thing. He says we're going to convert all our uh, Mahindra uh, holiday homes into uh, you know, in quarantine centers, and we're going to try and figure out how to make ventilators. I'm working with uh, JCB, which you know, makes construction machines to figure out how they can make low-cost ventilators. Same idea. What is it that the world needs right now that we have some capability to, to produce, serve? And don't just think about it from a profit perspective. It's, it's about can we do something useful that helps the crisis at a time, uh, at a time when you know, things are really, really quite desperate and find a way to give livelihoods to at least some of our workers and employees. So this sort of thinking, innovation, is really, really important, which brings me to my last point. It's not just the what, Pankaj. It's the how we, mm -hmm. we make these decisions, how these decisions are made, particularly in circumstances like this. First, if you're a CEO, founder, a, bus a business head, it's really, really critical at moments like this to lead by example. Look, the time is going to come, if it hasn't already, where many businesses are going to have to make incredibly painful people decisions to um, you know, send people home or cut salaries, etc. And this is traumatic in the best of times and in circumstances like this, it's beyond, beyond traumatic. And so here, how a leader leads is important. So, you know, many people would have seen this viral video uh, in the last few days of the CEO of Marriott. Uh, his name is Arne Sorensen. It's a beautiful video, so look for it if you haven't. And he's recorded a very short three, four minute video to all employees, Marriott employees, saying, look, this is something we have never witnessed in our lifetimes. And uh, we're going to do our best. And to start with, both the chairman and I have decided we are not going to take any salaries for a year. Now, when the leader starts like this and others also have to share in the pain, they are so much more understanding. And then you, as a contrast, you take Goldman Sachs, which has just given its CEO uh, a 20 percent increase in salary 
Now his compensation has been increased to 27 million. Now, if they have to take tough people decisions or their shareholders have to suffer, they're going to be really mad. Okay. So in, you know, this is like wartime. Uh, successful commanders in wartime lead their troops from the front. They're the last ones to eat the meal. They make sure that the Jawans have eaten first. Okay. And that's how you build loyalty and followership. Okay. So that's kind of really, really important to keep in mind in, in a crisis. The second thing is you've got to involve your stakeholders in making the decision. Okay, you can't just make decisions and announce them. So if you have to take difficult employee decisions, don't just communicate to employee. Involve them in making decisions. Share the facts. People are adults. They can ex come to the same conclusions. Okay, and they can also come up with ideas. Maybe they say, look, we're all willing. This could be a long haul. Uh, we just need enough money for, for food. Okay, and we're willing to make that sacrifice. So we don't know what that what that is, okay? So, but you involve employees as a, as responsible adults who are in this situation together with you, and you will come up with more commitment, more understanding, and better ideas. Same way on liquidity. Don't just cut the payments to your vendors. That's what many companies are doing, and it is so bad, okay? Have a discussion with your vendors and figure out how to share the pain. Okay, same thing with your bankers. So, you know, for a banker, if you go belly up, it's no use. It's You have to write off the loan. So can you negotiate something? Okay, so in, in a crisis, you need to be able to work with all your critical stakeholders and negotiate, uh, you know, new terms. And if you do that, I think you build a much stronger culture. So, look, what is culture? Culture is not something you write on a board. Its values are not something that you just put on a piece of paper and hand out. It's, it's the way you make these choices, particularly in times of crisis. And when you emerge from it, it's going to determine what kind of a company you are, what kind of a uh, culture you have, and how you are seen as a leader or not. And most of all, it's going to determine whether you survive or not, how you feel about yourself. Even if your company goes under, you can still feel good about how you, how fairly you treated everyone, how you all did your extreme best. And well, it, sadly, it wasn't good enough. And so I think the how matters even more than the what. And anyway, let me stop here, because, but it's basically a call for leadership. Leadership is not a title. It is not founder. It is not CEO. It is not any of these things. It's leadership is an act. It's how you act, particularly in a crisis. That's leadership. And this is a time when we need many more people to lead. You know, one of the final things I also want to ask is if you were to pull out five things, and make kind of a, a checklist for a leader in these times based on everything that you have said. How would that checklist look for you? Uh, one, two, three, four, five. First of all, I think what we all have to recognize, it, uh, diagnose this problem correctly. Okay. At, as I said from the, in the beginning, this is 
a mass extinction. Okay, this is a mass extinction of businesses everywhere and of jobs and livelihoods. Okay, now if you see this as a mass extinction, you can prepare yourself and you know plan a little bit better than if you think delusionally that by 15th April we're going to bounce back. Okay, there is almost no probability of the of us bouncing back anytime really, really soon, okay? So the correct diagnosis of the problem is kind of really high out there. Now, there's hope in mass extinctions. When, you know, the last time there was a mass extinction on the Earth, the, the, that asteroid hit the Earth and 99.99% of all living things died, including the dinosaurs. But some creatures survived and adapted, including ancestors of mammals. And within a few thousand years, the planet was flourishing again. So from the ashes of this destruction, first there will be many survivors, and there will be many new enterprises that spring up. And so you can't lose hope and faith. What you've got to do is say, I'm going to do my extreme best to adapt uh, in all the ways that I talked about earlier. Okay, Charles Darwin said, look, the, the fittest is neither the strongest or the most intelligent or the fastest. It is the one that is most adaptable to change. So think of it that way. How can you become adaptive and agile in this moment? And it's not just you. It's you and your little ecosystem. I think it's very, very important, as I said, to lead with heart and head. This is not just about head. It's not just about profits. It's not just about valuation. It's as much about lives. Okay. So make, making thoughtful decisions and treating others the way you would want to be treated is really important. Look, you wouldn't want to be delivering packages without protection at a time like this. So don't make your people do that. Don't put them in harm's way. So the golden rule is treat others as you would want to be treated. Essential services need to be maintained. Business continuity is needed. But then protect employees. Okay, Give them the, the, the isolation, the flexibility, the masks, all the things that they need. Be generous on you know, taking care of emergencies and medical bills and so on and so forth. So leading with head and heart at a time like this, rather than being mindless and stupid, so I'm also going to do it. He has cut salaries by 80%, so we should also do it. The worst thing we can do right now is be knee-jerk and emulate stupidity. The other thing, as I, I keep emphasizing, is cash, cash, cash. From a business continuity standpoint, uh, you know, the, I can, it, cash is oxygen. The faster you begin to develop an understanding of how much cash you're going to need, given the, the worst case scenarios and start planning and conserving uh, for it, um, the better. The final point I would say before we sign off, Pankaj, is this. Look, this crisis will pass. Uh, every crisis does. And most of us will still be around and will probably come out. You use the word resilient in the intro introduction. We will come out stronger, tougher, more resilient in some ways. The point is, are we going to be less stupid at the end of this? So if you already think about this pandemic, 
and think about what can we learn as humanity, as individuals, as business leaders. There's so much to learn. For instance, it, we have to learn to live in harmony with nature. Why did this virus uh, mutate and cross over from animals to humans? Because of bad eating practices in China. What is the price of this gung-ho growth, which is completely unsustainable in every way, environmentally unsustainable, economically unsustainable, etc.? What kind of a society are we creating with such extreme inequality that most people have no resilience, financial resilience, you know, are facing starvation and death if the government and we don't do something imaginative and huge and bold right now. Is this the kind of society we want? Okay, how much travel do we really need to do? Today, we seem to be coping perfectly well, you know, without without having to travel. And in fact, nature is better, our lives are better, everything is better. How much do we need to consume, etc., etc.? So there's just so much we have to learn from this. And I hope you know, we learn both individually and collectively. And yeah, we come out of it more thoughtful, less less stupid than we were. That would be my hope. It's not a checklist, but it's a hope. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, before we sign off, uh, Ravi, just one final thing. You know, there will be scars uh, from the journey, right? And even when we are coming out. So as individuals, as founders or, or professionals, how can we stay hopeful? I mean, it, <laughs> It's completely hopelessness, right? I know it's a, it might sound a little philosophical question, but resilience matters when we are able to rebound. Uh, so what would you tell people? First of all, just look at the facts. Humanity has come through so much, including situations which are even more dramatic and worse. And um, I once spent uh, two days with a young woman who was uh, a Tutsi, who survived the genocide in Rwanda. And she told her story. She broke down crying, uh, recounting it, because she lost everybody in her family. She herself was um, uh, raped many, multiple times by multiple uh, people. And she finally ended up as a refugee in the, in the U.S. And she rebuilt her life, became a Rhodes Scholar, lives in Switzerland doing amazing work, um, back in Rwanda now. So I said, look, what an amazing story and what courage you have. She says, I don't think there was any choice. Okay. She said the will to live and survive was so strong. I just, you know, kept going and just put one foot in front of another and eventually the horror ended. And so I think in a time like this, first of all, the most constructive thing I am doing is counting my blessings every several times a day. Gratitude. You just look at what each of us have. Anybody who can listen to this podcast is already in the top 0.1% uh, of Indians. Okay, So count, just systematically write down all the things that you have to be grateful for. You're not infected by the virus. You've got your loved ones around you. Probably don't have to worry about food at least okay and there is no even if you know things don't go well from a business standpoint you have an opportunity to rebuild and a scar is also a badge of honor okay it's not just something that is ugly it should it's a badge of honor that you went through an extreme situation and came out to tell the story so yeah i i just think the the most important way of keeping hope alive 
is to stay connected to others. I think I get a lot of sort of comfort just being talking to all my friends all over the world, all my co- colleagues uh, in various endeavors. Just human connection at a time like this when we are locked up is beautiful. And um, the other other thing is to be grateful for the things we do have, which is quite a lot. You know, on that note, let's just wish everybody good luck. And uh, I, I for certain believe we'll come out of this stronger and more sensible. Thank you, uh, Ravi, and Godspeed. Uh, this was really, really useful conversation. And I hope uh, all of us talk about it and learn from it. Thank you. Thank you, Pankaj. Good luck to you.